0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Sarab, I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by...
1: Emma Posey, the coalition's manager of American Moment.
0: And do we have a fantastic episode for you guys today? This is a new host combination. Emma and I have never taped together, uh, unless you count the one time where uh, I was just babysitting Helen Andrews' baby upstairs, and, and she was taping with her, which still is one of the top five episodes of the podcast of all time. And that was the first time I believe Emma had ever been on camera, so always a good uh, a good sign there that that you guys enjoy having her on, and um, you know we we enjoy bringing her on as well. Uh, today we had on Mary Eberstadt, and I'll get into her formal bio in a second. But as always make sure that you're rating and reviewing this podcast five stars uh, if you do that and have a question uh, send in your five-star review to Amer- a podcast at americanmoment.org um, or include it in the comment on apple podcasts and we'll be sure to answer it um, uh, as always, make sure that uh, if you like to watch the YouTube version of this, we do record this in uh, 4K with like a five-camera setup and uh, spend a good chunk of change doing so. So, if you would like to see um, my ugly mug and our two lovely female guests this week, you can uh, you can look at it on there as well. Um, and then always go to AmericanMoment.org where you can find information about. Uh, everything we have cooking here at American Moment, including past episodes of this podcast, um, all of the stuff we have on Amcanon. We recently added a whole bunch of new stuff, um, especially really cool speeches from the National Conservatism Conference, including one uh, by Miss Mary Eberstadt here. Um, Now, who is she? Um, Well, she is the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Center and is a Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C., Her latest book is Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, with commentaries by Rod Dreher, Mark Lilla, and Peter Thiel. Her other books include It's Dangerous to Believe, How the West Really Lost God, and Adam and Eve After the Pill. Mrs. Eberstadt's writing has appeared in many magazines and journals. She's a frequent public speaker inside and outside of the United States. Her 2010 novel The Loser Letters about a young woman in rehab struggling with atheism was adapted for stage and premiered at Catholic University in fall of 2017. Seton Hall University awarded her an honorary doctorate in Humane Letters in 2014. And during the Reagan administration, she was a speechwriter to Secretary of State George Shultz, and a special assistant to Ambassador Jean J. Kirkpatrick at the United Nations. You can find all of her work at maryeberstadt.com. She's great. I mean, uh, so here's what I'll say, you know, I know that we have a lot of typically much younger edgier twitter focused guests on the show and we're still a fan of that but it's always important i think to, to give due to people who have been beating the drum on important issues for a long time and for those of us who think that a lot of this realignment on the right has to be essentially social conservatives reclaiming their rightful perch atop the conservative movement and the primary determiners of it someone like mary eberstadt is a fantastic guest for us to have on emma what did you think of that episode
1: I think it was one of my favorite episodes yet. Uh, Mary or Miss Eversat brings such a profound perspective being born in the 1960s herself, which she shared. I'm not outing her um, (laughs) and getting to not only research, but live this entire um, progression from the sexual revolution brings such an important perspective to the podcast and even just to our conversation today.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the sort of fallacies that I really tend to get annoyed by is a lot of the emergent thought on the right these days that seems like you see this a lot with critical race theory, especially like, oh, uh, you know, we must return capital R E W T V R N to uh, when to, to 2013. That's when everything was great, right? Or, or even 1995. Um, when in reality, a lot of the pathologies in American life have antecedents that go back a lot longer than that. And until we're willing to contend deeply with a lot of the core social innovations that created the American society we see today, including birth control, no-fault divorce, and all sorts of other things like that, uh, we won't understand why things are, are just as bad as they are right now. Um, look, I, I have a standard riff on this, which is that we are uh, the only case for the black pill that I put any stock in is that we are rapidly barreling towards a society where unmarried childless women in their mid 40s with a lot of disposable income and ssri addiction five cats and primal rage against a world that has done them wrong will be the primary drivers of american politics in a society where most of the men are addicted to porn and weed
1: yeah and you know, if it's not SSRIs, they're now addicted to testosterone. So that's a whole go. another uncomfortable thing. Yeah. Yeah. I One of the areas I wish we'd gotten into more on the podcast has to do with transgenderism, right? And so I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again because you should always use the words of your enemies against them. But the ACLU has this great line still on their website where they say that the last remaining example of sex discrimination in our law is the draft. And to that, I say absolutely yes, because it turns <laughs> out discrimination is, in fact, a good thing. Um, it can be used poorly or it can be used well. Um, and in like having the draft and having this like in our law is actually like one of the few remaining times where we do make a difference between men and women. And we do understand the different roles that they play in society and how important that is. Um, and that's something that Miss Eversett brings out so well in this podcast is understanding like the role of men and like rising to this occasion of protection and provision, and the role of women um, fulfilling a role as mother um, in the family, as wife, and how beautiful that is when that does work together in a healthy dynamic in society, and how lost that is, especially with the move to castrate the draft and remove any male pronouns just for a broad, generalized person, um, and the celebration we have of women um, who were, in fact, simply men making large like steps for womanhood in society. Um, that don't represent women at all, which, you know, is personally insulting and should be as for a society.
0: So that's something that we we could have definitely dug more into. But we did get to a lot in this episode. We talked about birth control. We talked about fatherlessness. We talked about no fault divorce. We talked about transgenderism and and, and the, the whole gamut and uh, uh, a teaser for you to make sure you stick around all the way through. Uh, you can enjoy about halfway through this episode. Emma's uh, <laughs> very, very uh, Uh, circumspect uh, praise of one Joseph Stalin. So with that, we'll go now to Mary Eberstadt. (laughs) Eberstadt, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks
2: for having me, Sir Rob.
0: Well, uh, we always like to begin with how people got to the point where they are today. Uh, Walk us through the journey where you uh, became the, the leader on the issues that you are on, the person who makes... Feminist, very angry in the way that you are. Uh, t- tell us how you got here.
2: Well, I grew up in a series of small towns and hamlets in upstate New York, scattered across the state. I think twelve different ones. My stepfather was a manual laborer; he would move for work, and so that background was very different from the one in which I, from the the world that I entered when I went to university. I ended up at Cornell, uh, where the politics of people were very different from what I was used to. The Uh, class of people was very different. And that was what got me started thinking. And uh, I ended up uh, going to uh, work in New York as a writer. And from there to ghostwriting for Jean Kirkpatrick when she was our ambassador at the United Nations. And then uh, for George Shultz when he was secretary of state in the Reagan administration. And that's what uh, launched me. I've done all kinds of writing. Uh, in addition to speech writing, uh, novel writing, pretty much everything but poetry and reportage. So I would encourage the wannabe writers out there to flex those muscles and really work as many genres as you can because that's how you get someplace uh, in this crazy racket.
0: I find that really interesting because uh, I feel like the life cycle of writers in D.C. has become very attenuated in recent years. People come to D.C. at, at 20 and they're immediately... And an op ed columnist, whereas it seems like you spent some time in government, some time doing other things before you entered the field of commentary in the way that you have uh do you do you think that that's that's the way to do it to to get some experience kind of behind the scenes before you become a commentator or, or what do you make of that?
2: No, I just think uh again, working in as many genres as possible is the way to go, and I also want to add, lest I sound like this was part of any great plan, which it wasn't that I also took off about fifteen years of uh, after getting married and uh, having four children, I just sort of hung up my watch and hung up my pen and uh, watched the world go by for a while. So everything you do uh, feeds into your writing. That's an important lesson for people to know too. So never think that quote downtime is just downtime and never think that you have to ride that bicycle 24 seven because I really think that it's in the downtime and in the experiences of life that you get the local color that you need and the the time to reflect that you need.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the lessons that women in D.C. are starving to hear, too, is sort of that permission slip that it's okay to take time off to be a wife and to be a mother. And that doesn't mean that they're hanging up their career or that they've let go of everything that they care about, but that there's a way to do both and to fully invest in both in each season of life as it comes. So hopefully that's a lesson that they'll listen to as well.
2: I don't think anybody looks back at the end of life and wishes that they had uh, added that thing to their resume, as opposed to had another child.
0: How did you get to the point where you were writing about the the issue set and the and the kind of cultural mores that you write about now? Was it was it something that uh, you were always particularly interested in? Did you kind of slip into writing about it? How how, how did you kind of arrive at the the that you now occupy?
2: I was born in 1960, so my life pretty much tracks perfectly with the biggest problems we have in America today. (laughs) I think those problems are brought on by uh, social trends that nobody understood at the time would come to be as destructive as they were. Uh, So for example, when I went to kindergarten in a public school, uh, mine was the only family uh, in which the kids had different last names from the parents, because my parents were divorced the only family, and this in a not-religious area. That was the norm. Uh, Fast forward 20 years, and a third of the girls in my high school were graduating pregnant. That is what the sexual revolution looks like. So I was seeing it up close and personal as well as reading about it, and it has really changed our world, as young people know who take this kind of fallout for granted. So one of the things that got me writing about Uh, what happens when you don't have parents in the home, what happens when mom has to work all the time and dad's not even there, Uh, was a a sense of humanitarianism, really, because I was seeing the negative results of these changes up close and personal, uh, as well as trying to document them in my writing. So that was one reason for my interest in these controversial subjects. I was convinced that there was a lot of negative Uh, fallout out there that no one was accounting for or caring about
1: so then fast forward to 2020 you wrote an incredible piece called the fury of the fatherless that encapsulated the riots and unrest that we saw in 2020 almost better than any other piece that i read that year so could you give us the thesis and like main thrust (coughs) of that piece
2: yes thank you emma so summer 2020 Summer 2020 saw 10,000 incidents of violence, um, uh, of protests, I should say, and 500 of those turned violent. That's a lot. That's not like anything that people had seen in the United States before, not on that scale. And it got me thinking about the deeper underpinnings of this. Um, I had written a book, published the year before, called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, And again, my focus was on all of these unattached young people who have seized on politics, um, identitarian politics, left and right, to make up for these uh, holes in their lives, um, for the failure of primal attachments to their families and communities. This is what we were seeing in summer 2020. It had spilled out into the streets. It started um, with a a general revulsion against police brutality, understandably enough. But what it devolved into was um, psychosis on parade, the the tearing down of statues, not just statues of confederates, but in this town, as you may know, they defaced uh, Mahatma Gandhi's statue even. Uh, So this kind of indiscriminate rage against male authority in particular, I thought was very... Revealing, There is a lot of suffering out there. Uh, conservatives often minimize it, but it's these damaged uh, people, these um, overgrown children uh, who have failed to, uh, who, who have not been socialized properly, uh, who are undermining politics in this country, and we need to understand the deep roots of this. There may be
0: sort of two elements to this right there's there's the people who grow up without fathers or with with maybe not the best fathers Uh, and then there's i I feel a a category of people who do grow up in pretty healthy family environments but then are socialized as soon as they leave that environment by college and by the broader culture to hate every part of their upbringing how how do you disentangle the two um and what where do you think the different consequences are
2: I think that it's very important for conservatives to put the message out there that today's young people uh, have been robbed. And they have been robbed of their pride in their own country. This is something, as you say, Sorb, they learn in college. But also they've been robbed, again, of these primal attachments to home and community. So this loss is operating at a number of different levels. And I wouldn't keep hitting that message if I didn't think we could do something about it. I think the first thing we have to do is educate young people who should be on our side. You know, the left is very cynical about the young. The left exploits the young, and it exploits this desperate need for attachment, and that's what you see happen at college. You have Somewhat formed people going off uh, and being picked off by professors who teach them to hate where they come from. Um, What they have to understand, those young people, um, is that they are victims, but they are not victims of what their teachers tell them. They are not victims of abstractions like heteronormativity or the gender binary or microaggressions. No. These are words that were made up by people who have profited from them. (laughs) Uh, They are victims in many cases of social trends that are not their fault, that started before their time, that were committed by previous generations. And I think once they understand that and can see clearly the ways in which they are manipulated by these collectivist entities, uh, we are going to see... An infusion of new talent and new passion in the conservative movement, and it's going to come from young people. They just need to understand their situation better than many of them do.
0: The genesis of those trends um, is often given to uh, cultural mores that emerged in the in the you know late mid to late twentieth century. Um, but I've often thought that an underrated aspect of it is something. That wasn't an idea. It didn't come out of any graduate school. It was a piece of technology, namely birth control. Um, How central do you think the creation of birth control as a widely used piece of um, social, cultural, and medical technology was to all of the downstream consequences we see today?
2: Yeah, I think it was absolutely essential. I think it is the most important Thing to affect relations between men and women since Eve took the apple in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> <laughs> I think, although that's not a popular position, I think uh, that the Vatican called that one right. I remember uh, working at a magazine called The Public Interest for a legendary intellectual named Irving Kristol. And one day Irving came into the office and said, do you know what the most important document of the 20th century is, the most predictive one? I said, no. He said, "Humane Vitae, the document reaffirming what had been ancient church teaching against artificial contraception. I didn't think much of it at the time, but later, years later, when I finally read that document, I saw why he said that, because the document makes predictions about what's going to happen in a world where contraceptive sex is the norm. Uh, The document predicted a rise in tension between men and women, a rise in infidelity, uh, and a a general souring of romance. It also predicted that governments would use this technology coercively. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, uh, all of those predictions have been ratified empirically in ways that the author of the document couldn't have known at the time. And that's an astonishing thing. So yes, the, the pill is essential. Um, And I also have a lot of sympathy uh, in the matter of same-sex marriage when the advocates for same-sex marriage said one thing. I disagreed with them about all of it. But when they said, you know, heterosexuals messed up marriage long before we asked for it. And I think that is true. And I think the birth control pill has a lot to do with that. This could not have been foreseen in the 1960s. In the 1960s, people advocated for artificial contraception on the grounds that it would improve marriage, right? That it would give men and women control um, uh, over their destinies, etc. that it would prevent abortion was another argument that was put forward. Both of these arguments were completely wrong. The widespread adoption of the pill led to uh, a rise in a sharp rise in divorce, first of all. And then uh, 1973, the legalization of abortion. And you see this in country after country, by the way. It's not just the United States. Whenever uh, contraception is legalized, just a few years later, uh, it's abortion on demand. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a pattern. So what does it tell us that the birth control pill's adoption actually led to widespread family breakup? uh i think it tells us that the people who saw this coming were right
1: absolutely I am from the Anglican tradition, um, not far from you all, and we define marriage as, and the purpose of marriage, I guess, mainly being for procreation, for companionship, and mutual sexual enjoyment. And so when we think of birth control, that seems like one of the first redefinitions of marriage that we've seen in the last hundred years, because all of a sudden, what was inherent to being married, the possibility and likelihood of procreation was removed from the equation and is then fundamentally changed, like you said, the way that we think about these relationships and the Way that we think about marriage. So I'm curious if you're thinking about my generation now, I think we're, I think we're probably the second generation that's been given birth control, like candy at this point. And so if you go to the doctor and you have any issue whatsoever, like at all, they're like, well, birth control is probably the answer from acne and everything else. And so you have entire generations of women who are just being raised on this. Um, and we know many of the negative effects, but what concerns you most about it today? And what would you say to women or to this generation?
2: I would say open your eyes and understand that you are manipulated. So, for example, why is it that corporations increasingly cover egg freezing, for instance, which just assumes that women and only women will procreate on their own terms? Nothing is said about husbands and fathers. Why would corporations do that? Well, because it's in their interest, of course. It's the bottom line. And just as that's the bottom line for women, uh, similarly, in the the entire kingdom of what's woke, I think that especially young people, again, are being taken advantage of in ways that they don't understand and need to understand. So connected to the question about women, uh, let's talk about uh, the transgender phenomenon for a minute. From this angle, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look into it, it, you see that there are merchants of all kinds who sell everything with the transgender flag. Uh, and even more important, when it comes to the kinds of treatments, the chemical uh, <clears throat> treatments that people are getting, these things are marketed. These things didn't come out of nowhere. There, there isn't a you know, testosterone tree that you can go pick shots <laughs> off. They are marketed and companies profit from them and they also create <clears throat> what the tobacco companies created, lifelong customers, mm-hmm. right? So you go down that road and you will be in big pharma's pocket forever. These are just a couple of examples of ways in which I think our, uh, our society takes advantage of young people without them realizing it. And again, it's something that has to be understood.
0: One of the other piece of technology to that I think <laughs> augmented and accelerated everything that birth control does to society was the internet and the rise of dating apps and 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 an acceleration of all of the trends you saw previously because at least before the internet received widespread adoption there was still a human connection element before you know people would would engage in hookup culture how how do you think that the internet and and Dating apps has has accelerated all of the negative trends that you saw emerging back in the nineteen sixties.
2: Oh, there's no question that they have. But again, the solution to this <clears throat> excuse me the solution to this is awareness. So, for instance, years ago, back when people had Blackberries, or at least like rich people and smart people had Blackberries, <laughs> uh, a writer a friend of mine went to a conference in Silicon Valley, and. It was with a bunch of uh, heads of tech companies and the first thing he noticed was that they were leaving their Blackberries aside. They didn't want to carry them into meetings. Now, here, people were carrying them you know, everywhere they went, but the point was that there are times when unhooking from technology is the most important thing you can do and they knew that and that is why also in Silicon Valley, their kids don't have laptops in the classroom their kids are limited because they understand better than anyone else the power of these technologies to uh, destroy uh, as well as create and entertain. So that's uh, something to be aware of too.
0: You've touched a couple times now onto the the corporate element of all of these social trends. How it's it's pushed by, augmented and accelerated by. Corporate entities. Uh, I guess this this goes into a broader critique of the right that can be made. Um, you know, we just came back from the National Conservatism Conference where you gave a fantastic speech. Uh, in terms of its ability to respond to these trends, do you think that the right's general indifference to the excesses of corporate America over the last fifty years has been a mistake?
2: I think that first of all, <clears throat> I am not attacking capitalism. Uh, capitalism is no more responsible for these outcomes than, say, the wheat fields of the Midwest are responsible for obesity, right? It's about choices. I think we learned a lot from the opioid crisis. This, again, is up close and personal to me. Uh, I had friends and family in upstate New York devastated by the opioid crisis. And I would make uh, one point about that, The attention to the opioid crisis, apart from the early attention that came from uh, certain whistleblowers, good people who stood up, who saw what was happening, most of the political attention came from the the social conservative right. In other words, if you were reading the Claremont Review of Books, if you were reading the American Conservative, you were aware of this before the rest of the country was. And I think that's very telling because it does suggest that there was a lack of compassion. Um, one could argue on the establishment right and absolutely on the left because these people who were dying were mostly in flyover country, they were mostly working-class people, and there was really very little interest in that. So there's a lot of recrimination in retrospect that can be made, but. I think the most important thing we learn from the opioid crisis for our day is to be wary of the way that things are marketed, and to be discerning consumers. Um, So, to the extent that the establishment right and the libertarian right uh, discourage that kind of discernment, yes, I think there is, uh, you know, there's something to be said about that.
0: One of the Retrospective criticisms that is often made of of one of the great leaders of the conservative movement, Ronald Reagan, uh, is that when he was governor of California, he uh, signed, I believe, one of the first, if not the first, expansive no fault divorce laws in the country. Uh, how do you think no fault divorce uh, pieces in with all these different elements we've discussed so far? Um, was was it the the original spark that lit the fire? Or was it just a consequence of a culture that already moved? Walk us through how you think about that.
2: Yeah, I think it was the equivalent of throwing gasoline on the fire. It definitely made things worse for kids. This is the point I always come back to about the sexual revolution. It falls hardest on the littlest shoulders. You know, it's it's kids who have paid the price uh, right down to the ones we see today who I've been describing in Primal Screams and elsewhere. You know, these unattached, messed up kids. Um, about Ronald Reagan, having served in the Reagan administration, you know, like any political leader, of course he made millions of decisions and some of them were going to be wrong. Um, But that example also goes to show that we should not put our trust in princes, right? We should not lionize political figures the way we do. We, I think are suffering from that in the conservative movement right now look the tide seems to be turning a little bit as of recent events there's new momentum on the right and i think this is a moment to put divisions aside and agree on attacking a few big things because it's a target rich environment out there
1: yeah absolutely it's interesting your home state of new york was actually the last state to pass no-fault divorce in 2010 and I was looking some of this up last night, and there's been an attempt in Texas in 2017 to overturn it and a few other pleas. One man in Nebraska even made the argument that no-fault divorce actually denied him due process and equality before the law because his wife had the full right to leave and most likely have the children in custody and then move to a different state where he is tied to a job and could no longer like rightly interact with his children or family and how important that is. Um, but I stumbled across what is probably one of my favorite quotes. Um, and I'm going to read it for the pleasure of all. Um, but it's from Elizabeth Brainerd's research. And she says that the first modern no-fault divorce law was enacted in 1917 in Soviet Russia. A primary goal of the Bolsheviks was to break down the traditional bourgeoisie structure of the family in order to equalize status of men and women. So they did this by implementing a number of changes to the family code, including instituting no-fault divorce. So by 1926, to get a divorce, a spouse needed only to register with the local Bureau of Statistics, and then the other spouse would be notified three days later. Um, So then the results are not what you would expect. So divorce became much more common, and for men, remarriage emerged as a new and widespread marital institution in the wake of divorce. But like our studies still show us today, women were much more likely to remain divorced. And my favorite part of all of this is that when Joseph Stalin came to power 10 years later, he reversed the policy because of its destructive impact on the family. So very (laughs) bad man by all measures, but also maybe had some pretty good things going on at the same time.
0: (laughs) Um, I think that one of the interesting consequences of... Some of the rhetoric that's used um, when discussing these issues uh, is, you know, often often I think social conservatives would love to make the argument that the biggest consequences of these innovations and, and cultural mores uh, are uh, to women. But I think that it's it's often understated just how devastating they are to men as well. And then conversely, how much these choices are are made by women who who may well know exactly what they're doing and choose to do it anyway because they they want the liberation and the control that it offers them. Uh, what do you think the consequences have been for men in American society and and in the West more broadly by all of these 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 social policies?
2: I think for men, uh, the sexual revolution has been more like a slow acting virus that mm-hmm. is uh more destructive with every decade uh, but not well understood when it's entered into and it's entered into as a great big party um i use this metaphor sometimes i do think the world after the sexual revolution is like a world where there's a big party going on in the neighborhood and it's two in the morning and nobody wants to call the police but suddenly everybody realizes that things have gone too far <laughs> So the question becomes, uh, is it time to call the police? Um, you know, one of the things I mentioned at the National Conservatism Conference was something I saw years ago uh, at a conference on pornography. And so this message does go out to the young men listening. Uh, there was a conference brought that brought together mainly doctors and therapists. This was uh, early on in the internet pornography epidemic to treat addicted young men, mostly. And um, I was fascinated by this conference, by the, the medical uh, literature on the damages done by pornography. But most of all, by two men, two of the bravest men I've ever seen, who came to this conference as witnesses to offer their personal testimony. And they described uh, how their addictions to pornography had destroyed their marriages and their families. One of these men wept as he told this story, and I will never forget it. And I don't want anyone who hears this story ever to forget it either, because you ask about the damages to men of the sexual revolution. I mean, the idea that sex is just something in private and nobody ever gets to say anything of it is completely wrong. All these private decisions have massive consequences, and uh, that is one example.
0: What are the elements of this that, are just a policy question, or primarily a policy question. You, you've mentioned a couple of times where uh, awareness and, and and prudence on behalf of citizens is is the most important aspect. But when I look at something like you know the epidemic of pornography, I think that a policy solution could be quite effective. Just in terms of, I mean, I think I think there's quite robust research at this point that there are all sorts of social outcomes um, for young people that can be you know. Orders of magnitude better if you can just delay the first time that a young person uh, sees violent pornography. You know, just the difference between the first time being twelve or fourteen can fundamentally change the way that a young person grows up. What are some of the tangible policy things that, that if 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 you were, uh, you know, president tomorrow or, or czar, uh, <laughs> that you you would immediately turn around? That's one.
2: Excuse me. We have laws on the books against obscenity. They're just not enforced. Uh, Stigmatization is another avenue. But in in general, to answer that question, uh, rollback. I'm all about rollback. And I think this is where establishment conservatism, where I, I, I tend to have a foot in both camps, but where I think they're missing something, that we can't just keep going on as if there isn't something to be done about these problems. We can't just say, well, yeah, the culture's a mess, but we're not going to do anything about it politically. So enforce the obscenity laws is one answer. Um, I am not one of those people who's made a pilgrimage to Hungary, so I can't tell you all <laughs> about you know Hungary's uh, experimentation. But I did hear something that I thought was fascinating. I heard uh, that when Hungary rolled out these pro-family policies, an important unintended consequence came about. The abortion rate dropped by a third within six months, I think is what I heard. Now that, those are policies worth pursuing, including in the United States. If we get rid of Roe versus Wade tomorrow, which I devoutly hope we do, We'll still have abortion in America, right? We'll still have a great need for the pro-life movement to step in uh, with, I hope, enhanced charity for single mothers and babies and all of that stuff. But if we can keep people from uh, opting for that choice in the first place by policies that make it easier for them to have their kids and raise them and policies that reward large families like, a mother of four being exempt from income tax for the rest of her life, <laughs> yeah. for example. Yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is that I think we should experiment with all of these kinds of initiatives. We should look at what other countries are doing that are, that are working and tweak the incentive system. Now, that requires political power, of course. So there's a great role for politics in all of this.
0: Uh, one of the aspects of this that I think are are, are very underrated is that when when the left engages in sort of an intergenerational march on a given issue. It first speaks in the language of tearing down barriers. Uh, and then there's a little bit of a pause where there's no barriers, and then it seeks to rebuild a new hierarchy. And so uh, I think whereas one generation of, of, of leftists uh, had a primary goal to tear down the patriarchy, we are now squarely within a generation that seeks to either create or reinforce A kind of matriarchy. Um, What do you think the consequences of a matriarchal society are? Are there any historical evidences for what goes wrong? Are there any contemporary ones for for why that may be a bad idea?
2: Well, I think it's a bad idea because uh, it leaves half of humanity out of the picture, right? Um, We have to understand where this is coming from. Identity politics, okay, is born in 1977 with a declaration by radical African-American feminists uh, called the Kumbahi River Collective, and the words identity politics are first used in this document, and in this document, it is essentially a declaration of matriarchy. It essentially says, we do not trust men to have our backs. We have given up on all of the other people in our lives who are not just like us. So, matriarchy in that example starts with loss um profound loss and so does identity politics is that a problem well yeah only if you think that you know love is something we're called to do um i want to make a point about the kind of feminism that leads there because uh, i think this is important and not not well understood if you look at what if you look at the language of feminism, if you look at the the rage that's behind it, if you look at the belligerence with which it's often expressed, if you look at the faces of people who are marching around with those signs, you know, mm-hmm. um, on the steps of the Supreme Court whenever there is an opinion about abortion that goes their way, what you see is this uh, imitation of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And I think that The reason for it is precisely that they don't have, in many cases, healthy relations with men in their lives. And what does that do at a subliminal level? It leaves women unprotected. I realize that that's supposed to be a terrible thing to say. (laughs) Um,
0: I don't think our audience is gonna be very (laughs) upset with you. I think think
2: they will understand. Uh, In other words, That same loss that leads to feminism in in the first place results in an imitation of male behavior. What could be more ironic than that? Uh, Similarly, let's talk about the Me Too movement for a second. At one point I sat down, I read hundreds of these accounts, you know, Me Too accounts, um, and they were amazing because they were like Roshamon the men didn't understand the women, the women didn't understand the men. I'm sure there was you know, a lot of guilt uh, involved, but mainly it was these enlightened, progressive women, the products of our better institutions who were being taken advantage of, it sounds like, by these predatory men, and the women had no clue. Like No one had ever told them, don't go to a man's hotel room at one in the morning, for example, just basic sort of uh, self-protective stuff. And suddenly, it occurred to me that these women might not have fathers, brothers, cousins. This familial dissolution that I keep describing has taken people out of the lives of other people. And so one reason I think that they're clueless is that they haven't had the sort of normal reality checks. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in Me Too, it was remarkable that almost No men came forward in these accounts, uh, like fathers, uncles, cousins. None of these young women said, and and then my dad, you know, went to his house and said, look, lay off or whatever. There were a couple of cases uh, involving celebrities where boyfriends played a protective role. And otherwise, there was just no mention of such a thing. The idea of the protective male familial figure intervening to keep something bad from happening. This has been a loss of human knowledge that is uh, staggering. Uh, I don't think that's an underestimation. And it's again, a consequence of the sexual revolution, which took people out of other people's lives and resulted in a diminution of social learning
1: so one thing I want to pick back up on at the beginning of what you were saying, you said that the matriarchy leaves out an entire part of society, i.e. are men. But then thinking about that conversely with the idea of a patriarchy, do you see or do you understand a patriarchy as leaving out women? Or is there a better holistic way to understand this, that our culture has largely lost and failed to potentially have been taught over the years?
2: Patriarchy has become such a loaded term <clears throat> that I think we would have to use up the rest of our time, you know, <laughs> uh, explaining exactly what we mean by it. Um, <clears throat> I don't think the alternative to matriarchy is male oppression. Mm-hmm. I think uh, <laughs> male and female, he created them. I think teamwork. Uh, there's something really beautiful about that, that we're in danger of losing and not helping younger people to understand.
0: Do you think that? I mean, one of the temptations that a lot of uh, conservatives tend to have, or maybe even better word to use here, is Republicans. Is uh, you know uh, we reject the social innovations of this year. We would love to return to the social innovations of seven or eight years ago. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, I see this a lot in the discourse around critical race theory, for instance. Right? Is that. Um, Almost everyone, with the exception of the person who created the entire movement against critical race theory, namely Chris Ruffo, um, who is actually very sophisticated on this, uh, seemed to think that... The problem is, is that we created this thing in the last five to six years. Once we get back, uh, rid of it, we'll be back to some sort of halcyon utopia, whereas uh, Chris takes a, a much more expansive stance, which is that critical race theory is a useful concept to package together a set of innovations that go back a lot further than just very recent times. I think a very similar aspect of this is, is feminism, the sexual revolution, and all these other cultural things we've been discussing um, is that many people on the right today can only bring themselves to criticize the innovations of maybe the last decade, if that at all, maybe even just the last five to six years. Um, how, how far back do we need to go? You mentioned you, you believe in rollback. Um, what is the sort of balance of power and the status quo amongst the sexes and in broader society that, that you aim to rebuild through your work?
2: I aim to rebuild the idea first that women and children are not natural enemies, This is a very unnatural idea that has percolated through the culture, thanks to the legalization of abortion on demand, mainly. I think that idea has gotten in the way of human happiness. Uh, I think women need to understand that children are in their best interest, and so are men. And I do think that, you know, To take the example of critical race theory and all of these other uh, toxic ideas that have come out of the universities, conservatives lost an important thought at some point along the way. And that thought is words matter. Words always matter. Mm -hmm. So, for a lot of people, especially in Washington, you know, in the think tank world and elsewhere, Whatever was going on in the universities was just some kind of local crazy thing, and we didn't really have to worry about it. The kids would get the sheepskin, and then they would go out into the workforce, and everything would be fine, right? Look where we are now. We are where we are because we forgot that words matter and that these boutique ideas uh, were not just being rehearsed in the ivory tower uh, ad infinitum without having an effect on society. No, they've been... Indoctrinating now generations of people, which I could see at Cornell University going back in time. At that time, half of the political science department were Marxists. Being a Marxist was not a stigmatized thing. Being a Marxist was kind of a cool thing, you know. And then came the Velvet Revolutions, and suddenly all the Marxists disappeared for a while, (laughs) or they went by other names Gramscians, you know, more polite uh, forms of the same thing. So the point is that we have to remember that words matter.
0: How much of what goes on in, in college? Because I, I I don't think that we can understate just how important college is to this whole equation. I mean, it, I think it's it's especially important because, you know, there's, there's a rise of now, especially on the right, a sense of, uh, you know, cultural energy that, you know, get married, have children, uh, you know, the greatest rebellion you can engage in by doing these sort of things. But I think one thing we we risk doing with that is, is kind of um, naive optimism because at some point, your children will leave the nest and they have to be inoculated against what broader culture will try to do. And there's no force in American life that seeks to break down any wholesome structure or virtue built into young people than the colleges. Do, do you think that in aggregate, once these institutions sort of Break young people down; they, they bring them down to a baser level, such that they 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 just set a new norm for them. That this is now the accepted norm of behavior. There's no real point in pursuing virtue because you've already kind of brought yourself down to a lower level. Is is it is it just destructive in that sense to people's own kind of self-conception?
2: Um, <clears throat> sure, but there is also a burgeoning counterculture. In other words. Uh, people unthinkingly sent their kids off to college, assuming that they were formed by the age of 18. Now people understand that we have to be a lot more proactive about that formation, right? So it is very encouraging that, for example, there are uh, charter schools, of course, but also that the classical academies, that that model is burgeoning across the country because people want alternatives to the public schools and so kids are learning greek and latin and the classical tradition again because their parents understand that they can't just sit idly by and hope that the the culture will train them up the culture is rotten in in many ways uh it is also encouraging that on campuses uh there are all kinds of organizations that didn't exist before when i was in college there was nothing like the, fellowship of, uh, the F- uh, fellowship of Catholic University students, it's now on over 100 campuses. There was nothing like the Thomistic Institute run by the Dominicans, and I'm not trying to rat them out and get them in trouble, but they are now on every Ivy League campus and a number of other elite campuses. So there's a lot of movement out there among people who understand that they need a counterculture. They can't just sit on the sidelines of the, the dominant culture. And that's one reason why I'm hopeful about things, because the rot has gone so deep that people now understand it's time to do something about it.
0: I think that there I, I agree with that cause for optimism. And so if if you think of kind of broader society as a pyramid and you know, there's this wave of just absolute barbarism that's been rising up through our institutions, there's kind of a glimmer of hope at the bottom now that's starting to percolate its way up. But we now see the the upshot of of you know, forty years of this sort of culture moving through society, and I think there's no better example of this um, than the the, I mean, absolute calumny of a, a four star admiral named Rachel Levine. Um, walk us through what you've been making lately of of the elevation of 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 this person to such high status in American life, and and what it says about about how far things have have degenerated.
2: Well, I'm sure America's enemies in the world are enjoying this tremendously. <laughs> and, you know, having served at the United Nations and in the United States State Department, I can tell you that when America's enemies are celebrating something, it's probably bad for us. Yeah, That's a political point. About transgenderism, I mean, first of all, uh, given what I've been describing, given... The way in which we've taken people out of our lives who could teach us or just love us uh, through all of these, you know, revolutionary trends, it's no surprise that there's so much sexual confusion out there, right? Um, again, people need to be aware that they're being manipulated in this way, and they also need to understand that this is not some long-standing human need. I understand there are arguments made, well, there's always been this thing and we just haven't understood it. No. I wrote an essay for the Claremont Review of Books um, in which I walked through eight points of comparison between the transgender movement and QAnon. And... (laughs) Okay, well... The reason is this. There are similarities. All of this starts with the internet, first of all, and I'm uh not apologetic about that comparison um these are movements of people who have fallen into a set of beliefs that would not exist if they were not studying them on the internet obsessively mm-hmm. there's a lot of room for therapists in all of this yeah
0: the that that's a fascinating point and and it's a concept that i've Thought about a lot. I've, I've always been sort of a hobbyist. I've always had kind of odd hobbies, origami, fountain pens, that sort of thing. And and what you started to see in the in the mid to late 2000s, as the uh, as kind of the internet, especially a, a consumer accessible internet, e-commerce came to existence, is the resurgence of all of these uh, industries that had kind of fallen away sometime in the 20th century. Again, like fountain pens and things like that, because all of the the slightly odd people who were into something were able to find each other and create. Both a commercial culture and a mutually reinforcing cadre amongst themselves, whether it's on web forums and then eventually those web forums became in-person meetups and and so on and so forth. And so some of the darkest things that I've seen on the Internet, mostly on Twitter, um, have been examples of of sort of older transgender people um, Mm -hmm. creating... Uh, mailing services where they'll mail sort of discount hormones to, to children and, and, and young teenagers, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, guides on, well, if you can't get the most well-refined biopharmaceutical version of these, here's some alternatives, some odd chemicals you can piece together, Mm -hmm. maybe even some herbal supplements that will, will sort of do the same thing for you, um, and we've let children loose in this world you know they have their phones and and they can go find something and once once you go a little bit into some corner of the internet it's a rapid rapid path to generating much deeper into it so I think yeah the, the 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 internet's influence on these social innovations cannot be understated I don't know if you're familiar at all with with what tumblr was for a certain generation of young people but that's one that there's there's a a, not, a pseudonymous Twitter account named Default Friend who who has written a lot about this that a lot of what goes on uh, has gone on probably the late 2010s uh, through now is the consequence of the Tumblr generation coming out into the real world and and the Tumblr website itself is gone now <laughs> or much less well used um, I'm sort of just ranting now but but talk more about <laughs> well, the internet Yeah
2: yes yeah I mean we we can all throw up our hands about the internet but You know, it does raise, I think, a deeper point that ties together some of the things we've been talking about. Everybody decries our divisive politics, right, and the tone of American life, but we have to understand where some of this is coming from. In the example you just described of the transgender guy selling hormones for cheap, uh, I think what we see is that uh, these... (laughs) Violations of nature, if you can put it that way, make people dig in, like really, really dig in. And again, to get back to the example of, of feminism and the, the coarse tone of so much of feminist discourse and feminist action these days. when it, To me, it suggests that people know deep down that something is wrong. Yeah. And they respond to that not by exactly facing it. But by insisting all the more that it is right, this is how we get to a feminism that supports abortion up to the moment of birth. That's where that's coming from. Deep down, they know it's wrong.
1: I think it's also interesting to point out that not only are those websites selling things on the side, but they're also providing step-by-step guides for how to hide these changes from your parents. Um, which is, as we're seeing as of late, a really big problem and something that Congress and um, even like local families are starting to respond to. But in many ways, transgenderism attempts to and it, the online version of it, at least like fly directly in the face of your actual family Um A lot of the students that you're talking about, even in your Claremont review, are women who are coming from middle to upper class families that are statistically more likely to have even both parents in the home. But we're seeing such an online radicalization contrary even to the family itself and how to hide binders from your family, how to hide it at your school so your family never knows and all of these terrible aspects that come with it. But one thing, and you've been really good in this episode about bringing up sort of the compassionate response of recognizing just being a victim of the environment that you're in, something that I find incredibly fascinating is there is a book written in the last couple of years called Countdown, and it's written by a researcher who is not a conservative by any stretch of the imagination, Um, but she basically goes through and talks about the chemicals um, in our food and in our water and the contents of our cleaners that we're filling our house with, even like our candles and air fresheners. And every aspect, um, like of our like modern day and age from like, don't touch the receipts and so on, that is actually like reducing testosterone in our men and is sort of blurring even the chemical understandings of male and female that directly corresponds to the rise in gender dysphoria in the United States. Um, and I think like Saravis said, like testosterone has dropped by 1% every year for the last 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even just biologically, it's no surprise that we are where we are today because we're not even like formed in the same way as like f- understanding like being fully man, fully woman um, at a biological level. So it's no surprise that then it's coming out, both with the cultural encouragement and that on top of it.
2: Yes, I noticed, say, 10 years ago, if I gave a talk to students or wherever uh, or whoever um, uh, about anything pertaining to the sexual revolution at the end of such talks, very often, somebody would raise their hand and say, well, Mrs. Eversett, what about the fish? I'm like, the fish? <laughs> you know, yeah, what about the fish? You know, what about the fish that have like the ovaries and you know, that got all the parts inside? Mm-hmm. What about these messed up fish? Uh, and I would always duck the question by saying, well, I'm not a medical doctor, <laughs> you know? And, and I, I thought this was a kind of fringe thing, to be honest. And then one day, I see that National Geographic has put those fish on the cover, talking about exactly what you're describing. So yes, there's obviously a biological reality here that people have been incurious about for reasons that elude me, but I would be very interested to know more. I think more research in this direction is important.
1: And I'm curious because, yeah, so you're making this point exactly, that we're seeing this change and something that by all stretch of the imagination, especially what we know of recent history, is a very unnatural um, progression. But on top of that, I'm curious, what do you think the role of trauma has to do in the rise of transgenderism? And how do you sort of understand like that progression over time?
2: Well, I'm not a medical doctor. <laughs> um, so I wrote something for Newsweek that goes right to this. Uh, there was, uh, I have you noticed that suddenly it's not even transgender, like that's not even the coolest thing. The coolest thing is to be non binary, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a, an article um, in some left wing place about these celebrities who, you know, are all non binary. And I thought, huh. And I wrote down their names. I didn't know most of them. <laughs> and then I saw another article uh, listing some more celebrities who had just come out as non binary. And I, I went Googling for a couple of hours, and what I saw was that in almost every single case, almost every single case, these people were coming out of broken homes and reported sexual assault in their past, almost always as children. That's just anecdote, but that is powerful anecdote. And... I think if somebody wanted to go into this dark territory and sit and Google for a year, they could put together a really compelling case like that. When this article in Newsweek came out uh, arguing this, uh, a therapist got in touch with me and said, every single person in my practice, and my practice treats transgender people, knows this. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows that all of these kids coming to us have trauma in their past. And everybody's afraid that if anyone says anything, we'll lose our licenses. Again, that's just anecdote, but it's highly suggestive anecdote.
0: Yeah, that, that is, I mean, you know, I, I, that that strikes me as as obviously true. And, and you can think about specifically with broken homes, right? I mean, when you have the divided attention of the parents, there's an extended family being created or a mixed family being created, you know, uh, one of the kind of Heuristics that I've used for a long time is that what happens when you have a culture uh, where people aren't raising their own children, they're being raised by daycare? You know, you have 18 to 25 children in a room with an overworked, uh, you know, uh, sitter in, in their mid 20s, and the children uh, that yelled allowed us to get the most attention because there's not enough attention to go around. And what is um, the sort of very public form of 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 signaling around uh you know different forms of gender identity and transgenderism if not a form of of primal screams i mean it's 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 people crying out for attention i mean you often find and and honestly thank god for this that a lot of the people who identify as transgender don't actually get any form of biological surgery or even hormonal intervention and and you know that's good because it means it's a lot easier to reverse the consequences of, of of that process but um I think I think when you break down all the traditional structures, whether it's family or community or even nation that would traditionally give people a source of meaning and 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 sort of fuel to their, you know, livelihood that they'll go looking for it elsewhere. And our culture is very good at giving a lot of attention to these people when uh they clearly need need help.
2: To get to a point that Abigail Schreier has made, the the great majority of people transitioning now are girls who want to be boys right and i didn't know that okay yes yes if we take a step back and think about that for a minute why wouldn't girls want to be girls that's the way to frame the question why don't they want to be girls and i think the answer is that at some subliminal level they know that it's a Threat-rich environment out there. Mm -hmm. They are unprotected out there, and the threats, interestingly, start even before they're born with the with uh, gender side, right? The killing of unborn girls because they are girls, and then the ones who are allowed to be born enter a world where there are fewer men who have their backs, fewer fathers, fewer brothers, fewer uncles—all the things that we've been talking about. So. There's a reality there about the flight from the female gender um, that I don't think we're we're doing justice to.
1: And what's interesting, and um, Shire makes this point also, is that it's most likely women who are transitioning to be um, men. However, they will likely go through with the mastectomy, but most times they will never go through the hysterectomy. So not only are we asking the question of why don't women want to be women, but why would women rather be neither? And, like, not really want to be men, but not want to be women, and just sort of like live in this state of uncertainty that, even if it's out of a response of wanting to feel protected, has to make you feel even less protected because now you don't actually fully align with either gender or with either understanding of self in the world, which to me seems like an even more terrifying place to be that sort of just perpetuates this fear and desire for protection um, and uncertainty even further.
2: So, another way to think about this, and I wrote about this in the Claremont Review, is to look at uh, testosterone shots and what effect that has. Because when you read accounts of people who are deliriously happy to get that first shot, partly because it's a ritual, uh, it's an important point of entry. But also, you know, in the, the cases described by Schreier and others, what I'm seeing is that Uh, This sounds like an elixir for anxious girls who want to be stronger, who again getting to that point about being unprotected. Um, I remember years ago, Andrew Sullivan was getting hormone shots, testosterone shots for some uh, health reason, and he was writing about it on his blog. and His description was fascinating because it's exactly what these girls describe about suddenly feeling like I can take on the world. And it must be great, right? <laughs> you know, I, can, I can do all these things. So there's a, a chemical element there that in other contexts we would call self-medicating or masking or, you know, we'd use words like that to describe that kind of diversion. But I think that's got to be an important part of this too.
0: I, I've i seen, a, I look often to East Asia to see you know, where we're going in 10 years on all, all sorts of social <laughs> metrics, um, especially as it relates to fertility, family formation, all that stuff. But I also think the breakdown between the genders, I think if you read people who have looked into this, South Korea is basically the furthest along society when it comes to just total breakdown of of any sense of of relation between the sexes that makes sense and that's conducive to human flourishing. And it was uh, encapsulated for me in this fantastic fantastic i say that in very like non in a normal not in a (laughs) normative way uh comic strip um where it shows uh a a young man sitting on a subway in a seat in a seat and the subway all the seats are full and a pregnant woman comes on uh to the subway and you know in the west ideally we would think oh it's the responsibility of that young man to stand up and to uh to give that seat to that pregnant woman um and uh there is a strong undercurrent amongst men in south korea um, that why should they because they they feel like some sort of social compact has been utterly broken um, that there is no there there is no reason to have that sort of mutual respect that would lead someone to do that sort of thing and and that's where i think we're headed is that we we had, you know traditional societies for for millennia had come to a sort of equilibrium point where men by being men gave something to society and received something in return, usually in the form of, of monogamous marriage and children. Um, and then women being women received something and, uh, you know, g- g- gave what the best women could to society, namely children and, and the benefits of motherhood and then got something in return, which is protection. And so when the sexual revolution begins, destroys all the assets that monogamy has to offer, Women feel less protected, and so engage in these other behavioral outlays, and men feel more and more atomized and removed from society. I mean, this seems like a, a degenerative cycle that's that's going you know straight down to hell. <laughs> um, you know, are, you, you said earlier that you're optimistic, but but give me the steel man case for pessimism as well. Mm-hmm. You know, why why should we be concerned?
2: Oh, the case for pessimism is pretty easy. <laughs> um, uh, I think what's been lost, one thing that's been lost, is something I do remember from early childhood mm-hmm. in this very working-class environment, which is the idea that it's fun to be a grown-up. People wanted to get married young. My mother married at 19. Most women were married around that age. And the idea was, this is this is fun. You know, This is the crowd I want to join. And that's what we need to restore. And I think on the conservative side, we have a better shot at getting that message across, you know, stop being scared. Being scared is not a good look. You know, jump in. It's fun. It's fun to have kids. It's fun to be married. It's it's fun to feel like you're leaving something behind that's going to be good for society. So, I, I'm an optimist in part because I think there's power in that message, and we want to be the ones getting it across.
0: Absolutely, uh, Mrs. Eberstadt. Where can people learn more about? all of your writings, what you're up to and, and what you're doing.
2: Oh, thank you. I have a website, uh, and a very nice young man keeps it updated for me because <laughs> I don't know how to do that. But it has, uh, as well as um, information about all the books, there's a, a, a rolling tally of whatever I'm um, writing at the moment and uh, also a schedule of appearances.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, we hope our audience checks that out. and Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today.
2: Thank you, Sorb. Thank you, Emma.
0: Thank you. This week we wanted to highlight a bunch of speeches that we just added to AmCannon, namely from the National Conservatism Conference, which we just came back from about a week or two ago. Um, There are speeches from JD Vance, Rachel Bovard, Josh Hammer, who obviously all three sit on our board, as well as Josh Hawley and Mary Eberstadt that we particularly enjoyed. There's lots of great stuff there. We can't include everything, obviously, but we thought um, all of those were were particularly stellar, and we highly recommend you go check them out, either in their video form on Amcannon or the transcripts of them, which have been published as well. Miss Aberstadt's speech specifically was was fantastic. I remember sitting in the the plenary room at the time. It was sort of on the third day of the conference. Everyone's a little bit tired, and uh, there were various little little things she dropped halfway through um, that uh, that certainly woke everyone up. The the edgiest of which being uh, a line where she said, uh, "We need to talk about the N word, nationalism." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> everyone sort of stood up a little bit straighter in their seats. So um, she certainly had some some fun with it, and uh, there were some some excellent speeches. Um, J.D. gave an excoriating. Um, to the universities. Uh, Josh Hawley talked about the crisis of masculinity and what we owe to men in American society. Rachel talked about what national conservatism is, as did Josh. I mean, just a lot of fantastic stuff. Um, What did you make of all those, Emma?
1: Yeah, I thought it was incredible. Um, hearing many of them speak before, it was fun to see some of them really come into their element and articulate ideas that they've been ruminating on for a while but haven't brought to the general public but can bring to a conference that is all about national conservatism with all, with all of their friends in the movement. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed it. Rachel's Bovard speech had everyone wanting to elect her for president in 2024. <laughs> so we'll see if she decides to do that one day. We
0: we, we can only wish, um, uh, you know, many of uh, American Moons Board of advisors members will flirt with elected office at some point i assume anyway uh thank you guys as always for for tuning in this week uh for moment of truth we're coming up right to the end of season 1 here uh be sure to rate and review five stars check out americanmoment.org and thank you as always for listening moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.